Well, good morning one more time. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, which is a really good idea here at the Rock Church, please open it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we are in our continuing series that we started uh, five or six weeks ago. I'm losing track. I've got to maybe count for next week, right? Um, and it's, it's titled, uh, Living in Our Father's House. And as we will see tomorrow from our text, the Apostle Paul now uh, moves to laying out for Timothy more details about how we, from 1 Timothy 3.15, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is one of the first, epi- well, it is the first pastor epistle. We're going through 1 Timothy now. We're going to go through 2 Timothy, Lord willing, in January. And then Titus, the last of the three, again, Lord willing, later uh, in the spring, beginning in the summer. And our purpose is, uh, well, they're the pastoral epistles. They're written to churches in Ephesus and Asia Minor that, um, and Corinth where... Yeah, they were just planted. They were just going maybe 15, 20 years, and they were experiencing a lot of the things we're experiencing today, but also they were just getting going. And and they needed to understand exactly how the church ought to behave and be structured. And so today, beginning in chapter 3, Paul begins teaching about leadership in the local church. And I've said this uh, many times before, but for me as a Catholic, when I first became a Christian at 23 years of age, which was a, a little while ago, Uh, Two things became incredibly important to me to figure out, okay? First of all was this, (laughs) the Word of God, and no knock on the priests and the Catholic Church and so forth, but, you know, we had homilies. We we, We were not encouraged to go through books of the Bible, open our Bibles and read and study. We were encouraged to be taught and listen. And so this was really important to me. But the second was, well, okay, hang on a second. How do you Protestants do this thing? What is that supposed to look like, leadership and all the rest of it? Because I knew, again, how the Catholic Church was structured. And so that was important to me. But what I also knew in my early 20s was this. I actually knew and understood what leadership looked like. I mean, I was very young when uh, JFK was assassinated. And I just remember being sent home from school after that happened, and my mother crying, and like the world just in grief, and I couldn't believe what was happening. But he, he was, at least from my perspective back in that day, of course, he was an imperfect man, read history, yada, yada. He was a leader. And I, I just had this, this feeling about leadership that was actually quite positive, at least when I was eight years old, because <laughs> that's how old I was when he was assassinated. And so then I wondered, really, okay, from a, a, a newly birthed Christian perspective. How is this household of the living God, the church, actually structured? Well, after 40 years, I can tell you that I've learned a lot, um, but I've also learned this. There are two impediments to leadership in the church today. The first impediment is something that my generation birthed, baby boomers, and that is a rebellious spirit towards authority. Anybody? I think we were the first of it, but that, that's an impediment to leadership in the world, let alone in the church. But it is, and I see it quite clearly as well. But secondly, it is this. It is how the plain reading of the Bible has been and is being, is being impacted by the pressure of our culture to conform to its patterns and its beliefs about who we are as, yeah, men and women. So like last week... In my preface, I'm going to ask you to just listen to the plain reading of the Word of God. 
and hear what it says just in the plain reading of the Word of God. Let's read, beginning in verse 1 to verse 7. Paul writing to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he aspires to a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray one more time. Yeah, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for this word. Uh, Lord, we we acknowledge that it was written almost 2,000 years ago. (coughs) And Lord, uh, excuse me, we, we, we also acknowledge that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this is your word. Holy Spirit, you inspired Paul to write this. Lord Jesus, you gave him apostolic authority to write this for that day and for today. I pray, I pray, Father, that you would help us hear your word today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me communicate it faithfully. (coughs) Excuse me again. I pray that you would help us to hear your word in the plain reading and accept it for what it is. So I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So again, before we dive into this today, let me ask you one more time. Uh, Once again, that this morning, and and it's important that we let the Word of God, some construction going on upstairs, it's probably, yeah, anyway, um, that we just let the Word of God speak to us. Let it speak to us. Let it influence us and inform us, and let's put everything we can, that we, we bring to this text, or we might bring to this text culturally aside. So this text that I've been we're going to look at today. I've been preaching this and teaching this through something called a biblical eldership course for about 25 to 30 years in the church. Not just here at the Rock Church, but before we moved here, actually invited sometimes uh, by churches to come and teach them what eldership looks like and so forth, because I had studied it and so forth. And I'm not, I'm not bragging in any way, please hear me by saying that, just to say I have some experience. But even still, this week, I, I, I stepped back from my notes a few times. And I was like, well, come on, Glenn, you know this. Like, you really do. You know this, just teach it. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yes. And then it just, it just kept coming to me. And the reason why it kept coming back to me was, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it for what it says. But I have to tell you that in the last 15 to 20 years, especially the last 5 to 10, this passage and others, like the one we looked at last week, are under such scrutiny not just by people outside the church, but within the church itself. And so I tell you that so I can also say this, that I have seen and heard, listen, I've heard all of the objections to this text in the past 20 to 25 years. I I have heard them all. And again, in the plain and simple reading, I have to tell you that I haven't found any, any single support for the other view. 
I haven't. It's called the egalitarian view, where men and women are completely equal in value and worth in the home and in the church, and that men and women can assume any role in the church. I've heard them all. I've spent a lot of time in various times before refuting them, or at least trying to show people that why they're not exactly correct. And, and, and listen, I've also said this several times. I wish I could find one. <laughs> I really do. Why? Well, well, then we could stop debating it. We could eliminate what is becoming extremely divisive in the church. That's why. I would particularly appreciate that. And so again, like last Sunday, I'm not going to go through the examples. I'm not going to go through the examples and then you know, dissect each one and show you why they're false and why this is true. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to say this up front. If any of you, anyone in our church membership attenders that wants to discuss those things with me personally afterwards or at some other day or a couple of you do, let's do that. Let's do that. I would love to do that. And let's reason together from the scripture and we'll try to see and maybe you can show me something. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. And so finally, I do want to say this. This is important today and I didn't get to it last week because I wanted to leave it for this week. We as a church, as the Rock Church and myself personally, we hold this issue somewhat in an open hand. I have since I've been teaching this for 20 to 25, probably 25 to 30 years. What do I mean by that? We have sincere brothers and sisters in Christ who see it the other way. I know some. And so what we've always said, and I've always said to my friends, lead it out to the best of your ability. Okay? Lead it out that way to the best of your ability. God bless you. I think you're wrong. You think I'm wrong. But all we ask in return is that you would do the same towards us. You would have the same posture towards ourselves. You know what? Our denomination holds these views in open hands. And yet what I have seen again in the last 10 to 15 years is people of the other view are closing the hand very tightly on this issue. And it's not healthy. It's not helpful. So that's my preface, and I just want to let you know that our posture is open-handed. We lead it out the way I'm going to teach it today. We do it to the best of our ability, and we do it because we, well, we trust God's word. So let's dive in. First verse says this, Paul writing, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So in this one verse, Paul opens up, Uh, and basically introduces the most significant office in the New Testament church. And again, I've been part of different fellowships over the years, and even myself, maybe at some points, I've gone, well, you know, this, we're not like the world, you know, we don't have to have offices, and, you know, people in, in like really strict roles. After a little while, you realize, well, that is silly. Um, No, you do, you really do. And this is what Paul introduces. And so, but it's also important to see this. As part of teaching biblical eldership, I always point this out, that there's a succession in the way that Jesus organizes his ecclesia. This is his church, right? Jesus said, I will build my church. And so way back in the Gospels, you know that when Jesus was walking the earth, he picked 12 men to be his apostles. He prayed to the Father to give him the names, and they chose the names, and then he appointed these men, and and, and he trained them for three and a half years, best seminary you could ever go to. He taught them what good ministry looks like by taking them on mission with him, 
and he also taught them the gospel. And he lived out the gospel through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And to be a capital A apostle, you had to be someone, because first, uh, the book of Acts in the chapter, first chapter tells us, you had to be someone, when they were replacing Judas, by the way, who had known Jesus, had seen him from his baptism to his death, burial, and resurrection. You had to have seen at least the resurrected Jesus. And so the succession then is the, 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 uh, the power and the authority is passed from Jesus to his apostles when he ascends. And then we see the apostles. Well, we see one more apostle added, don't we? That dramatic road to Damascus where the apostle Paul is thrown to his face and blinded by the Lord Jesus Christ and chosen as a special emissary apostle to whom? To the Gentiles. And to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but also to plant churches. And so they did that. And in every church, we read in Acts chapter 20, and we'll look at that again today a little bit, but also in First Timothy, we're reading that in every place, Paul appointed elders. And so what you slowly see through the New Testament is this succession going from Jesus to the apostles to elders in the local church. There is even a point where we saw in our study of First Peter, where uh, Peter's uh, actually commenting that he's an apostle and an elder. So the, it's starting to cross even at that point. You read in First uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, he says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, we know Peter is also an apostle, but he's also playing and uh, living out the role of an elder in a local church. And then he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ... There's his apostolic identity, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he says, I love these words, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, which we see in our text for today as an overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So once the last apostle, the apostle John dies and passes from the scene, the baton is fully passed for the office of elder, overseer, bishop, whatever word we might want to use from the translations, to the elders in local churches. And so there's, as I said, a number of words that are used um, in the Greek uh, that can be translated as uh, overseer, elder. There's words for bishops and presbytery that we get as well uh, that come from the Greek. For example, episkopos is where the denomination episcopalian comes from, which is the translation for overseer. Um, and they're part of the greater Anglican communion in the world. The other, of course, would be elder, which is taken from the Greek presbyteros, where we get presbytery, which, again, uh, Presbyterians get their name from uh, for their denomination and for the offices in their church. And so back to first one, we see this. Paul opens with and asserting that what he says comes from his apostolic authority that is given to him by Christ. Now, you may say, well, how's that? I say, well, when he says this is a trustworthy saying, in the idiom of that day, in our language today, it would be something like this. What I'm saying to you, you can take to the bank. This is legitimate currency. This is truth. It also carries the weight of the perfect tense, meaning, in other words, it is for all time. It's not just for one place and one group of people or one church. It's for all time. So there's much that's contained in these first few words in this verse, and we'll spend a little bit of time on that before we go to the rest of the qualifications. 
Um, one word that I want to highlight is this word aspires. I, I, it's a, what a wonderful word, right? And I remember first reading this and trying to figure it out. And, and it's, it's an interesting word. It's a good word. It's a good thing. Um, it's, it's also a Holy Spirit thing I want to show you. And, I, and I've shared this to you before, haha. But, you know, there was a time in my life where, you know, like, you know, at 16, 17 years of age, I wanted to be an NHL hockey player. You know, I, like, I, I, did I aspire to that? Well, I, sure, I, sure, I certainly wanted to be, you know, but the, the problem was is that, well, you can see how tall I am. That, that just didn't really happen, right? So, 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 but people have these other aspirations, and they're good things. That was a want to be, by the way. That's not an aspiration. That's a want to be. A good example would people aspire to be a teacher, to care for and train up children. People aspire to be a nurse, a doctor, to care for people, for their health. And these are, these are good examples uh, of aspirations. A farmer even, all carry the sense that what you will do is for the care and benefit of others. And so aspiring to be in this way, it's not so much a position of authority and power at all, in fact. It's not that at all but very much a position of service. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. It's a position of service. So Paul is saying this, if anyone, you may be, feel called to the office of overseer as a Christian to the service of Christ in his church, then you are aspiring to a very good thing. Not an easy thing, as we'll see, but a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. So aspiring, as he said, is a very good thing, but it's also, it's also a Holy Spirit thing. And I learned this, oh man, many years ago. I shared it with you before, a couple things. Number one, I remember being asked to speak at a church in Vancouver as a young preacher, and uh, there was a man there who was an elder, and he was praying with me before the service, and I, I had been thinking about eldership at the church we're in. People, you know, if you didn't ask me, well, you know. And, and so I asked this man, I said, well, how do I know if I'm called to be an elder? And, you know, he, he had an amazing way about himself. He has passed uh, in the last four or five years. But he just said, you know what, Glenn, it's actually pretty simple. Um, you uh, will be, and people will see you already be, to be doing the work of an elder in the local church. And so there will be that. You'll already be doing things, teaching, serving, caring for people, going to the hospital, inviting people to your home, things like that looking to be in a role like that. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that, that I never forgot that when he told me that. It's also true that the call to be an elder doesn't come via, listen, another elder going over to you and tapping you on the shoulder and going, hey, I think you should join the team, right? It's, it, that, we have to be careful about that. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. Because why? Well, why? Well, maybe I could walk around and go, yeah, I'd like you on the team because you will agree with me. That's not the way it's supposed to go either. It's very much a Holy Spirit call. And as we bring elders on into elder and training and take them through the biblical eldership rock, uh, church at the rock, <laughs> course at the Rock Church, that's exactly one of the things we're looking for. We're looking for the fact that there's a Holy Spirit call on them. And it looks like this. We remember we looked at this in Acts 20 when Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus, Timothy being there about, hey, when I leave you, false teachers and wolves are going to come in. Well, he says this in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which, look at the words, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, now, 
I ask the question, why does Paul say that when Paul's the one who appointed them and anointed them and laid hands on them as elders? Well, because he did exactly the same thing that Jesus did. He prayed. He asked his heavenly father. He asked the Lord Jesus. He asked the Holy Spirit. Paul also tells us in his writings that oftentimes he got direct instruction from Christ, audibly from Jesus, about what to do. And so it's a Holy Spirit calling. That's really important to know that. And I'll tell you what, as you become an elder and you are an elder for a little while and trials come and difficulties come, it's nice to know you didn't pick this job, (laughs) but that the Holy Spirit called you to this. It's very, very important. So back in verse 1, one more time, lastly... Desires noble task. I love this. Uh, something, again, that I, I highlight in the, the um, um, eldership course is this, that, you know, as the men are starting to think, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm being called to this in the process of the course and whatever, I always say to them, gentlemen, th- th- this, by the way, it- it's not a position of authority. It's not a position where, you know, we get to get other people to do things for us. It's a task. It's a lot of tasks. A lot of tasks that you are being called to in this office as an overseer. But it's also a noble task. Blessings come with it, despite the challenges. Paul goes on in verse 2 and says, Therefore, with that in place, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So usually in a a biblical eldership course, and I remember the last time we had this here at The Rock, same thing happened. You know, we'll we'll read the whole text here in uh, 1 Timothy. We'll read the one in Titus. We'll read over in 1 Peter in chapter 5 as well. We'll read Ephesians 4 uh, when Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. We'll read all those texts, and then I'll look at the men in the room. And last time we had a a class like this, I think we had six or seven men, and I'll, I'll ask all the men at the table, how many of you feel fully qualified for this job? Right? When no one puts their hand up, I feel like we're in, a good, we're in a good possible place, right? But here's the thing, and it's good. Oftentimes, I've seen, and it happened actually in our last time together, where a couple of the men were like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm there. Because, it, listen, it, it almost sounds like perfection, doesn't it? Well, it, it's at least the goal, but it's also at least starting point. Someone must be on the process, on, the, on progress, right? It also would be something that is affirmed by other elders and by the church itself as well, although we don't vote on that as a church. The elders eventually make the decision. And so that's an important thing. We, as the way that we look at this is to see that it's, it's a noble task, that we're called to it. And I can, I can tell you, over the years that I've done this, with very few exceptions, have any men immediately go, yeah, for sure, I, 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 am, I am qualified for this. It takes time to, first of all, know that you're called, but also to be sure of that. And so it's, it's, a, good, it's a good assessment process as well. So that's a good start, in my opinion. On that note as well, I, I, I've also read this recently, where this is, I, I don't know, I, well, I, I, think I, well, I think it was a particular pastor, but I won't quote who it was, but I read this, and that is a good definition for this, is that, the church of Jesus Christ does not progress beyond the spiritual progress of its leaders. 
Let me read that for you again. The church of Jesus Christ does not progress, and I would say much, beyond the spiritual progress of its leaders. And so once a, a person is approved or affirmed to be an elder in a local church, that's a beginning, as we're going to see, of the task, of the noble task, and of the role. And so it's really important for us to see that. And that's why I've often said to men who are humble enough to question their qualifications for this office that, A, it is about the Holy Spirit's call. Don't forget that. And it's about the the evidence that the current elders see of progress in your life. And so if we have a a young man or a man who comes to us and is is coming to the chorus and then is putting their name forward and saying, well, we need to measure that. We need to measure that. First, as elders, what have we seen? What do we know? Because if we're going to put them before the church, as you're going to see, you as the church are going to have some time to let us know what you think. Right? And so there's some other words that come up that we're going to look at, and the first of those is this. Above reproach. So how should we understand these words? Well, I would suggest it's a little bit like we saw last week where Paul was saying, first of all, to the men, when you come to the gathering of the church, you should pray. So men should be seen to not be silent, but to be involved in praying and, in fact, be leading it out, but also that you should have holy hands. You should be lifting holy hands. And the picture there was is somewhat metaphorical, and the idea is that you should be coming with clean hands. And when people see you worshiping God and and praying out loud and being part of the gathering, they, they should be going, hey, hang on a second. They shouldn't be saying, hang on a second, I remember last Thursday in the marketplace and I saw them having a terrible fight with somebody or with their wife in the car. Smiles when they got out, but before that it was... Come, you know, appropriately. And so Paul is urging this and he's also saying here in this, despite the fact that no elder is perfect, there should be no charges against them or or serious examples against them related to their walk with Christ that might disqualify them. And so I'll note at this point what we all likely know is true. It's true, and it saddens me. I mean, it really does, and I have to watch myself, of course. But, uh, yeah, in the last 15 to 20 years, how many pastors in the North American church, thank you, social media, that it brings it to our attention, have fallen? I I mean, significantly fallen. Elders. That maybe doesn't get publicized as much. What about abuses in good, apparently quality, apparently conservative, apparently churches? It is a huge struggle. struggle. So you can trace almost every one of the failures if you look at them, no matter what they are. Every one of the failures in these men into one of these categories that we see here, either the positives or the negatives that we will be seeing. It's a failure being able to hold up and, and maintain these character traits, which is what they really are. So sadly, what we would all hope is that these leaders would, would just go to their elders and say, and I, I actually know of examples of this, where uh, uh, pastors have gone to the elders of their church and said, hey, I, I'm, I'm struggling right now. I have a problem. I need to step aside. And that's a good thing. You would, you would hope that that would happen more. But for various reasons, one called pride, It doesn't happen as it should. And so it's a very significant role, but that's why we need to be, and that's what it means about being above reproach. 
So first on the positive side, they are the character traits that follow, and it starts with these things that follow. It starts with this one here, husband of one wife. Now, you may have also heard this explained a few times as a one-woman man. I have to back up on this one a little bit for you because um, we, we lead this out a certain way at the Rock Church, but uh, this has been read potentially the wrong way. Uh, and, and, you know, so someone would read this and say, well, you know, what I just said, a one-woman man is a good, you know, a good paraphrase. But, for example, does this mean that a single man cannot be an elder? Some people might go, well, absolutely, Right. The man I just told you about a little while ago who told me what it looked like to be an elder, he was a single man all of his life. And when he told me that, he was around 64, 65 years of age. And he became an elder in the church in Vancouver that he's in because, well, number one, he was really totally qualified as a missionary who'd come home. And, and quite honestly, in that church, they didn't have too many other qualified men. And he took on the role humbly, and he did it extremely well. So is that question. Really, right? But also then we have to say, if that's true, then when we get a little further into this text, and it says that he must have his children in submission, that word children is plural. So what we're saying is he must be a married man, and he must have at least two children. Okay? Joey, you started too soon. <laughs> right? I mean, or, or hang on. What about a widower? Or, or what about a uh, 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 husband and wife where they have no children? Are those men disqualified from being elders? Uh, Qualified, capable, trustworthy teachers would tell you, Bible expositors would tell you what I'm going to tell you. No, not necessarily. Is it ideal that they be married and have children? It's ideal from a qualification perspective and a training and an understanding perspective, but it is not an exclusive thing. Now, how do we lead that out as the Rock Church? Well... We have male elders. We only allow men who are apt to teach do what I'm doing here on Sunday mornings. I know it's a bit exclusive, right? But we also do this. Whenever we introduce a man as an elder, we always bring their wife up on stage with them. Um, And we do that for a reason that came to me many, many years ago, and others would agree, and that is that, well, hold on a sec. Uh, Janice and I are in a one-flesh relationship. God gave her to me for a reason. (laughs) I need her. I need her wisdom. I need her sober second thought to Glenn. I need her her correction to Glenn. And vice versa. Trust me, it goes this way more. (laughs) But I need her. And so I just want to say this to you. At the Rock Church today, um, just... Because of the way the Lord's worked it out, I think it's a blessing. We have five elders, all of whom are married, and listen, to godly, godly women. Elders, say amen. <laughs> it's true. We as a church have a, a, a rule within our church as elders that when it comes to any significant theological, doctrinal, discipline, financial issue, we're going to discuss it with our wives. We're going to discuss it with our wives. Um, we're going to listen to their opinions. And their sec- well, that's just common sense, isn't it? Of course it is. If you want your marriage to last, it is. But it's really important in the church. So that's how we're leading it out. I just wanted to put that to you and help you see that and explain that to you. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's a, one of those things where that's how we lead it out. Um, and as I said, some people look at that and go, well, a single man, widower. I think you have to look at those things prayerfully, case by case in churches, and decide that soberly as a church. Brings us to our next four traits that fit together. Sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable. Sober-minded is also translated in some uh, translations as temperance as temper, uh, like a good temperament, right? And so uh, it speaks to be able to think clearly. Obviously, that would mean uh, someone who is, as we're going to see, not given to much wine, right? I I read one uh, commentator said, listen, it's a little like this. When you get on an airplane, you do want to know that the pilot has not had a glass of wine in the last six hours. Amen? Right? Like, you want to know that, right? And it's actually a rule. Makes sense. But sober-minded here isn't just about that. Could be. It's just a clear-thinking person, a person whose mind is not cluttered with all kinds of other things, but is able to be sober-minded and think in, in an in a pro- appropriate way that way. Um, it goes on, he also should be someone other men and women in the church respect. So even in a young man, that means, you know, um, respecting, looking even up to and, and, hey, look at the way they're leading their lives and look at the way they love their wives and look at the way that they care for their children and look at the way they treat other members of the church. And so there's, there's a respect. And it's not about putting them up on a pedestal. You all know that I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. But it, there's an element of respect there, and that needs to be there. And finally in this group is the word hospitable. <laughs> Such an important word. A man who's called to be an elder is not just hospitable because his wife likes to entertain. No, he's a man whose home and life is open. The word, the root word, is the word hospital. And I read this again somewhere. I don't know where I got it from. But there, there is something of the hospital about him, something of the physician's care, something of the shepherd's care and shepherd's heart about who he is. And then last very important, and not least, apt to teach. Able to teach. It's uh, one of the key traits that is not mentioned that we'll look at next week when it comes to being a deacon. It's not mentioned in the qualifications there. Almost all of the other qualifications are the same, as we'll see, but apt to teach is not there. And so of all the traits, teaching and or holding to the word along with Prayer, shepherding, pastoring, uh, the flock are the key duties of the elders. Those choosing the color of paint and carpet, not so much. We'll get to that next week. No. Being able to teach, praying for the congregation and people in the church, shepherding, pastoring, these are the key duties. And so as we will see next year, Lord willing, in Titus, Paul writes at the end of a similar list to Titus, these words in verse 9 of Titus 1. He must hold, look at this, firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. That's a key role of the elder of a church is to teach the word of God, sound doctrine, and Hold people to it, or try anyway. I feel it was incredibly marvelous this past summer as I took a vacation and a break for many weeks to see uh, three of our other elders preach here on a Sunday morning. Amen? Was that not encouraging? I mean, come on, everybody, a little nod. 
That's super encouraging. And you know what? They taught really well. They taught really well. And so that is really encouraging. Okay, a couple of things that uh, would disqualify a man from being an elder. Verse 3, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I, I don't think there's much that we need to spend time on here. These are, these are quite obvious, aren't they? Although they, you know, we can hide these things. Men and women, we can hide these things, right? We, we can put on, oh, we can look good. We can put on a good face. So those are things during the elder and training process. When other elders are going through a process of training, that could take six to nine months at the Rock Church where we invite that man to come to our elder meetings and, and we meet with them, have coffee with them, ask questions, pray with them, listen to their testimony, and so on and so forth. It's a time of discernment. But these clearly are disqualifications from this leadership role. And so I think we should see the first two, the first and the last as bookends that say that a man must not be mastered by either alcohol or money. Both would be equally killers to the role. Next, in verses 405, he says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household well, how will he care for God's church? And so, look, this is one of the areas, again, where I spoke about earlier, people come to this and say, well, it's got to be a married man, and he has to have at least two children. I think that is an ideal. We believe that is an ideal. However, I think the big takeaway we should take here is that this person be seen to be someone who manages the affairs of their lives well. So in other words, their three-car garage is not full of junk. (laughs) Their house is not a mess. Their finances aren't constantly in the negative. That in its bigger context, I believe, is what this is saying, because listen, we, we are stewards as elders of the church. You give your tithes and offerings to this church. We are stewards to manage how that is handled. It's not for our use, it's for the use of the ministry. And so that's really important how we do that. Finally, in verses 6 and 7, he says this, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I... I saw this many times when I worked at Union Gospel Mission, and God bless them, men or women, but particularly the men who would go through the drug and alcohol recovery program. They would be like six months, nine months clean, sober, found Jesus. Truthfully, they did. And they'd be like, I'm going to become a counselor. (laughs) Immediately, it's like, I I am now going to be the expert who could counsel other men or women um, to get off alcohol, to stop drinking, stop taking drugs, right? Not necessarily. (laughs) It's not necessarily the case. Recent convert. Sometimes we can get so excited about the church and about what we see in leadership and these roles and that roles. Might want to take some time. Then the second part is important. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So in our process of selecting an elder, we first wait for one, a man to come to me personally as the lead pastor or one of the other elders for that matter and say, hey, I feel like I'm, I really do feel like the Holy Spirit's calling to me this. Well, then fine, we take it to the elders, and if we agree, at least for the first step, we invite that person to come uh, to pray with us and to potentially become an elder in training. 
and that can then take six to nine months, inviting them into the, the monthly meetings and the work of ministry, presenting them to the church, yes, that they're an elder in training, but then at the end of that process, there's one last piece, and it is this right here. We will bring them before you as a church, and we will say, okay, we as the elders now want to affirm this man as an elder, but we want to give you 30 days to tell us, is there anything? Is there anything that we, we missed? Is there anything that you know, either inside the church or out there in the marketplace about their life that we should know? Thankfully, I can tell you that's never happened in 14 years. So that's a good thing. But that is part of our process, and we get that right there from this particular scripture. So as we uh, draw to our conclusion, I'd like to take us back to what I said earlier about having taught biblical eldership for so many years. And and that... um, I've heard all of the objections to this text. Um, I have. I've heard them all. I've heard, you know, like, what about the the example of this woman or this one or that one? And and I've heard them. I really have. And I understand. I understand how difficult that can be sometimes when we hear these words, Uh, especially when you hear throughout the text, he, his, he, he, right? It sounds like a male organized Bible, doesn't it? Well, certainly it does in this. So I've heard them all. And and then until very recently, I just want to share one with you as we go to our conclusion, because this is important to what we're looking at here today. I'd never heard this one before, but apparently, uh, particularly a couple of women authors and bloggers and podcasters uh, happened to notice something about this particular translation of the Bible called the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the Bible I preach from. Uh, An awful lot of pastors in North America that I know trusted as a trusted... uh, uh, translation, I have used the King James, the New King James, the NIV, the RSV, all very faithful translate. I, I use this one today because it's very literal to the original Greek. I believe it's accurate. I believe it's, uh, it's, ling- it's English is easy to comprehend and so forth. However, it has been discovered most recently that, you know what? There were more men on the translation team than women than some of the other translations. That's a sign, right? And secondly, that the words or the pronouns, we're going to talk about pronouns, don't you love that? He and his, in this text that I read for you today, are not in the original Greek. Case closed, women can be pastors and elders, right? Hold on. Hold on. Well, like I just said, every major translation, not just the ESV, adds the pronouns he and his. Now, you heard me just say that, right? They add it. But why do they do that? Well, again, Greek scholars, Christian and non, will tell you that pronouns always follow the primary noun. Let me repeat that. They always follow the primary noun. What's the primary noun in this text that we read today? Anybody? No? The primary noun is husband. So it is an important word. It's an important noun that's in there. It's the primary noun in this particular text. Overseer would be too because it's masculine, right? But that is the primary noun. And so that's one of the main reasons why it is used there. But I also want to show you this as we're going to get to uh, later in our series in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul writes this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Look at these words, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Stop there. So these are the elders who are considered worthy of double honor. What does that mean? Well, 
we should respect and honor our elders, period, all of them. Double honor means those who work and labor full-time, like myself, in the preaching and teaching of the word, should be supported financially. That's actually what that is saying. Then he says this, for the scripture says this, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves, deserves pronoun, his wages. That word is in the original Greek. It's the word aros, and it is always translated in the Greek or into the English as he, his, always related to a man. So listen, I want to close with this. Discipleship at the Rock Church, we look at it this way. It starts, well, it starts with you sharing your faith with men and women who don't know Christ. It starts then inviting them here to hear the preached word of God uh, on a Sunday morning. That's the beginning of discipleship. But it's also about going into missional community group, going into community, and reasoning together from the scriptures. Why? I have questions about what Glenn or what the word of God said on Sunday. That's okay. That's okay. That's why we do Mission Community Group. As I mentioned at the Churches Together last Sunday, um, one of the ways that we maintain the unity of the Spirit is by maintaining the unity in the local church is by reasoning together from the Scriptures so that we are of one mind on these things. Are we going to always, at the end of the day, completely agree? Oh, I can tell you from my experience, probably not but we can at least be of one mind that we are, we're going to labor together. We're not going to be divisive over these issues. So finally, I'll leave you with this. There's an exhortation that must follow from this teaching today. Pray for your elders. Can I encourage you to pray for your elders every week? Pray for your elders. Do that in missional community group. We are not infallible men. And I'll tell you also this. The moment that you become an elder, a leader in the local church, whether you're a man or a woman leading in various ministries, the enemy has put a target on your back. We are actually more vulnerable. Scripture also says we will be held to a higher account. So we need your prayers to remain faithful in our own personal lives, but we also need your prayers to remain faithful to this, especially in this day. Trust me, it becomes even more uncomfortable as the days go on to get up and preach certain texts. Pray with me, would you? (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Father, I again thank you. We thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you. That at the end of the day, Holy Spirit is you that uh, initially does the cutting to the heart uh, for those of us who realize out of someone sharing the gospel with us, out of reading or hearing the word of God preached, your word preached, that we are a sinner, that we need a savior. And then you lead us to Christ. And Holy Spirit, you are also the one who sanctifies us, who grows us up in our faith, who teaches us what is right and what is true. And so, Lord, I, I, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just speak to all of our hearts today, mine included still at this point, even on this subject. And that you would test us. You would help us to reason with you, but also reason together from the scriptures to know what is true and what is best. Because if it is true, even though if it is hard for us, it is from you best for us. So we pray that you would help us to understand that and that you would bless us. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen.